The Tea Stop In podcast series is inspired by the memory of the last surviving founder of the Australian Cinematographer Society, my friend, the late John Leake ACS. When he and his wife Marion retired from the film industry, they bought a little motel outside Sydney and it became a tradition for cinematographers and other filmmakers to stop in and have relaxed conversations about the industry and the craft of cinematography. It earned the nickname of the Tea Stop Inn. This series sets out to recapture the spirit of those conversations, but this time we're inviting you to listen in. The T-Stop Inn. Hi everyone and welcome to this special episode of The T-Stop Inn, recorded right next door to the Opera House at the beautiful United Cinemas Opera Keys, with the legendary Steve Arnold ACS talking about his experience shooting the hit Aussie film, Rams. Congratulations on the film, Steve. Thank you. Yes. How did this project come to you? Well, I'd already been working with Jeremy on a couple of projects. This is my third film with him. And he mentioned that it was coming up and... He rang me and said, what do you think about anamorphic? And I said, propos of what? And he said, a film. And I said, oh, okay. Uh, sure, it depends what it is, but yes, look, you know, it could be interesting. And he told me about the film and said, we're thinking about uh, doing a movie in West Australia. He told me a little bit about it. And I, you know, I knew the, the film, the original Icelandic film, which I'd seen mm. before. I was already familiar with the story. Yeah. So that, that conversation about anamorphic, where did that go next? Well, he was interested in anamorphic lenses and we'd shot a widescreen thing before, but he was interested in the glass, the particular look of the anamorphic, you know. As it is, it's a classic look, you know, and it, mm. was, it was, you know, well suited to this movie because, you know, in a sense it's a Western and an anamorphic's such a, a great look. So, he, you know, he said we should do some tests and, you know, we'll be able to shoot anamorphic digitally and all that thing, you know. Mm. So. so what was the process of testing the anamorphic glass well you know i thought great anamorphic i mean you know i like anamorphic it's um it's always good fun it has its own particular look and its own particular you know qualities mm. but i thought i'd give him a look at the different sorts of anamorphic so we went into a bit of a test i rang panavis and you know they're always great because of course they've got such a great range of anamorphic glass so we tested super 35 type of looks we tested large format, which was just starting to come in. This movie was shot 2018, so there was just some very elementary large format systems around. Mm. And we tested anamorphic lenses. And I, we tested Gs, Ts, Es, um, Cs, you know, whatever they all, more all, or less had. All you the know. classics. All the classics. The, the Es, although they're great, you know, they're, they're also very big, you know, even a standard, like a standard lens. Uh, you probably know, but I mean, they're all, you know, 10 inches long and quite heavy. So we were more interested in the smaller ones. But the T's, the G's and the C's kind of sat with that. And, and also the DXL2, we tested that too with standard lenses. And so I arranged for a, a farm in southern Sydney. Mm. And we took the camera down there and we did some interiors in a barn, some interiors in like a, a farmyard type of thing, just so that everyone could have a look at it. So and we put those up in a theatre and, and looked at all of those different systems and with skin tones and with flare and with, you know, quality of the bokeh and the out-of-focusness and mm, shallow mm. focus and deep focus with the anamorphic lenses and things. So, you know, everyone had a real good look at it. And, I mean, the G's won, you know. They, they, Jeremy loved the way they looked and he also, he loves flares. He just loves them. So, and the so G's are prime what, for what were some of the aspects of the, the G series that were really... Uh, particularly appealing for this project? Well... Um, flares, obviously. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And they have a, a, a great look. They're not overly distorted. They don't distort the faces. You can find in anamorphic sometimes, that in, especially when you're in close, mm. with the wider angle lenses, you'll get this kind of distortion of the face. And, and the you marks. were in quite close quite a bit. Yeah, you? well, we liked that, you know. Yeah. We, thought of, we saw that and was like, oh, OK, we'll keep that. <laughs> you know, and we'll drive them wide open and have people close on a wide angle lens and it'll be funky. And we did do that a couple of times, you know, in heightened moments, mm. during mm. the fire and, you know, when, uh, when our hero, Colin, is uh, stressed. Yeah, yeah which he is at various times it's in the very, movie. very, very effective. And just the way that it rendered contrast mm. and uh, the quality, like how sharp they were and, and the quality on the skin tones. The Gs just seemed to have it for everyone and went, yeah, I love that. Yeah, yeah. So The contrast in them is very interesting, isn't it? It's, it's a particularly anamorphic kind of look. It's not 
and it's not too modern and too harsh. No, they're not as um, they're not as present as the T series, mm. you know, and, and the brand newer anamorphic systems that exist in uh, in other cameras. So mm. I mean, they're a uh, they're a mix of the classic old style seventies anamorphic look and the newer one. Yeah, yeah. The newer the newer CRISPR looks. So yeah, they it does render things nicely. And what were some of the, the aspects of the lens flares that were, were particularly appealing? Because they have got very much their own flare. Well, you get they? that anamorphic thing where, you know, highlights tend to actually have this sort of horizontal sort of streak in this blue horizontal streak that you get. Mm. The anamorphic thing, that's a particular f function of an anamorphic lens, just the way the anamorphic distorts that. And that has a subconscious effect on the audience, I think, yeah, these days. It does, you know. Yeah. I mean, and it also sort of says, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's classic and a yeah. classic sort of look. You know, Jeremy did say to me, you know, he wanted a classic kind of feel to it. It's mm. vaguely mythic without being too yeah. overstated, you know. He talked about that as being a thing. So that kind of classic anamorphic look tended to suit the tone of the, what we were trying to do. Yeah. It's, it's interesting that what you were talking about, it being like a Western. And it's, I think that really is quite visible in the film and a lot of the, the choices. How did, you, how did you approach that in terms of focal length selection? Did that influence that at all, that perspective? Look, it was more about, I mean, uh, anamorphic has, doesn't have the really wide-angle ranges and the really mm. telephoto ranges. I mean, there's a telephoto zoom in the G-series has, you know, it's like 35, 40, 75, 100, 125, those kinds of ranges. So it was really more about placing the camera and thinking more about the perspective. So where you place the camera and then what lens you choose mm. to describe the frame in front of you. So it's more about blocking and lens, uh, camera placement than it is about particular lens. And so you, you shot this on the Alexa Mini? Yeah. So, you know, we needed some lightweight things. There was some, there's some steady cam. Mm. I wanted a camera package that would work for us to cover all of the aspects. You know, we had drones and helicopters and, you know, some handheld, but not very much. Mm. I wanted a, a camera system that would cover all of those bases. We some rem there's a lot of remote head stuff on cranes and other bits and pieces. So I wanted a more lightweight thing to you know, cover the bases. It's fairly remote where we went. Mm. Um, so I couldn't really you know, kind of get someone to go down to Panavis and cover pick up a, a camera and pick up a different <laughs> thing. You know, it was like we had to kind of take everything and be contained in the, mm. in the town. It was West Australia between um, Esperance and Fremantle, you know, very so close to Denmark. Mount Barker was right. where we shot it. So yeah. it was, that's a small town in sheep country. <laughs> And I guess the Alexa Mini would have allowed you to use the, exactly the same format as if you were shooting on 35mm film yeah, with correct. the anamorphic lenses. That's right, because the anamorphic lenses are built for, you know, the um, super 30, well, the, the, the 35mm frame, yeah, yeah. Uh, classic 35mm. So, so um, full, full height, four perf. Yeah, full height, four, four perf, all that stuff. So, yeah. you know, we, you needed a camera system that shot that 4.3 aspect. Um, in in the chip, so that you could use the anamorphic lenses with it. Now, when we were talking uh, the other day about this, you mentioned that you did some stuff with custom LUTs. How did you approach that? The, the thing about this film is, is that, uh, and what's interesting about it is that, you know, for the photography, one of the main things about the film is, is that it takes place over a long period of time. Now, it needed to feel like it goes over some period of time because the sheep get sick. The sheep are all killed. The townsfolk kind of band together. The townsfolk go broke. It gets hot enough for a fire. The, the, the bushfires come. The bushfire season comes. Growth regeneration. So it's all of this stuff. So we wanted to sort of start it in winter and take it through to the summer. So we actually had to have these two very distinct looks. So that was a real thing, the sort of sense of time and the sense of passage of time and also to try and... Um, show the extremes of temperature in the country because the countryside was a real player. The mm. life that they live in those sorts of remote regions is tough, you know, and the landscape is hard, you know. So, in fact, that's, that's probably the only thing from the original film that kind of found its way into this film was that sense of a very hostile environment. So to go along with that, you know, we had to film it so that, in fact, it was very cold in winter and very, very hot in summer and bushfires. And uh, How long was the shoot? I think it was 37 days or 35 days, but it, it was weird because we had to break it into two. One for reasons of being West Australia and it is hot and there is in that neck of the woods, 
you know, problems with bushfires. So the schedule had to sit in with bushfire wow. uh, regulations. Mm. Weirdly enough, we had to shoot the really hot summer in the colder months before <laughs> it always happens. So we had to shoot the summer stuff in the kind of colder months and then the kind of, as it turned out, because it took so long to make the set because it's, it's an amazing build. Clayton Jaunty, you know, you wouldn't necessarily realise it, but he built those farms. I mean, there was shack in a valley. That was it. And then Clayton built the rest, like the other farmhouse and the road wow. and the dams and the fences and, the, you know, and then reworked that other house so that the exterior was right for a farm and then part built the interior of that farm. The other, Collins house, was an exterior, exterior interior build completely from scratch. So that had to be built. So that was quite a big build. And so it took some time. So we ended up doing the winter parts of the farm in the summer. And there was availability problems with Sam Neal. Uh, he was already contracted to do a film. So we surveyed in March. We started pre in August. We shot through to the end of September and then we took a break until halfway through November. Uh, well, shooting wow. until halfway through November. Mm -hmm. So we came back onto pre. So we virtually kind of all went home for a month in wow. October. So that we could then have that break. So it was really stretched and we shot until Christmas Eve. Wow. So, you know, it was for the most part, you know, it was yeah. half a year, you know, wow. there yeah. and back. So it was spread out. Did having uh, like a clear visual plan for executing those different looks help you kind of execute that in terms of making those seasons work in the wrong order in the wrong place yeah well we had to sort of do that and because yeah. the schedule is the sh as the schedule is and you know and we the farm was you know the farm had to be the end of the schedule because of the build you mm. know we were shooting summer and winter on the same days so we actually had to turn around from summer into winter so <clears throat> it couldn't be a very big thing for the art department and i mean i said well what are we going to do about you know the first day of pre-production i walked in and said okay what are we going to do about summer and winter and you know everyone <laughs> said you're going to do it and i was like oh, okay <laughs> Great. So, you know, it was up to us to kind of like work out with Clayton and everybody uh, how we could work out making summer and winter. Part of that whole thing was to, you know, use some LUTs to actually help take the overall colour cast either a bit cooler or a bit warmer or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I like getting the photography right and the original photography. So I built some LUTs in pre-production and we had six different LUTs that I could then apply wow. uh, in, in league with the lighting and you know, and what we were doing in terms of, um, you know, exposing. exposing so what, what, what jobs were those different LUTs doing? Was it like three summer ones and three winter ones? or, or There was a day summer, there was a day winter, there was a night general, mm -hmm. there was a, a day for night one. We did one day for night scene. And uh, so you'd be, uh, depending on where the, the scene was in the, in the timeline, you'd be... Sorry, loaded. day exterior winter, day interior winter, summer exterior winter, right, yep. summer interior winter. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you'd be um, you'd be going, okay. Well, this scene is day interior winter. We'll put that lut in, and um, and so that that would allow you to then work to to that with your lighting and. and yeah, it worked process. in league with it. I mean, yeah. they weren't very they they weren't to tell you the truth. They weren't very big departures from standard mm. luts for standard rec seven oh nine for Just you know a little know, bit this up, way, a little bit that way, a little bit this way, a little bit that way. It was more about actually using um, secondary correction with the greens. Right. Yeah. So that was mainly what it was about to try and make the um, to try and make the summer a little bit um, less saturated in the green. Yeah, yeah, interesting. So that helped to actually make the um, the uh, grass a little bit paler. But the real trick was the grass. The grass was the killer boss in summer, of course. It goes brown so quick. Mm. It gets so dry out there, and the color of the grass would change completely, like from lush green to straw. You know. Yeah, yeah. So were you working with that a lot in in the final color grade as well? Like. Well, the, the well, look, you know, I knew that, in fact, at some point we'd be shooting winter grass in the middle of summer in December, mm. and I knew that the grass would be brown. So we, what we had to do in the original photography was to try and get separation because I thought with a little bit of colour and a little bit of chroma in the grass, we could use secondary corrections to help push us back into the grain. Yeah. But it needed to actually have separation from other things. So we couldn't have, you know, the grass right up against... A lot of things we we use mud behind the grass on the buildings so oh, it actually right. made a darker background from where the the grass edge was so you wouldn't get any of those problems we wanted to avoid any kind of like bleed or anything like that as much as possible 
So um, you're really setting stuff up physically on set to yeah, make it yeah, possible yeah. to do that. Absolutely. Oh, we had to. Yeah, like yeah. for the vehicles, you know, I just said, look, avoid green. You know, don't get the 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 tractors that are bright green, like as some tractors are. Mm. You know, the cars, just avoid all of that. I mean, I said the same thing to Tess. I said, you know, can we avoid green? And she said, no. <laughs> in the costumes, you know, it's like, no. How can you avoid green in the costumes? I said, okay, well, if you can avoid grass green, lime green, yellow green, that would be good. <laughs> and she went, maybe. <laughs> so so it fun. almost became like a, a green screen kind of situation. There kind of, of almost that sort of, of thing. It. But also to making sure that, you know, we moved sheep out of some pastures for some scenes because it would have been too hard. And as it was, we needed to do some rotoscoping just to kind of get separation because the fence lines might go that sort of strange slight greenness there so we had to do a little bit of that so yeah so there was a bit of work in post there was probably about two days just to actually sort of like which is pretty quick for that that amount of stuff oh there's a lot of shots yeah you can imagine you know yeah yeah yeah, totally so in fact trying to do it in camera kind of like really saved it you know as much otherwise it would have been total visual like it would have been 300 visual effects shots with the 400 yeah all kind of manually rotoscoped all that stuff yeah yeah, yeah, which would have been uh expensive Expensive and time-consuming. Yeah, and all that stuff. Not so much control. Yeah, so we actually managed to do all of the colour timing within the grading as opposed to making visual effects shots out of them. Wow. So great. that was good. So that was yep. a save for the production. Yep. Given the amount of juggling of seasons and all that, that's, that's pretty yeah. impressive. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So, yeah, we, we did so that. how much grading time did you have all up? Not much. Yeah. I think we graded this probably quicker than anything else. They seem to be getting less and less. I think <laughs> all up, including the grass, green grass, was seven or eight days. Wow. Wow, that is In the DI, you know, sweet. So it was racing. I guess that's the other big payoff of, of kind of finding those key elements of look, like the lenses and the LUTs and all of that so early on before you start shooting and then going in there with a clear plan. Yeah, it's good. You know, you're going with a clear plan. And, I mean, you follow what you want to do. And, I mean, I think it just helps you. If you're trying to leave it all to the very end, you know, you don't see enough of it to kind of realise what you need to do in the original photography to kind of tweak it so that it's right at the end. The other thing is is people get used to the way things look, that, you know, you might have a plan, (laughs) but if you leave it to later, then, you know, you go into the DI suite and everyone goes, I kind of like it the way it is. And you go, well, (laughs) but we always talked about making it winter yeah but maybe not quite so much you know so it tends to water down the kind of ideas that you first went so as much as you can kind of keep people on the same page if if everyone knows what it looks like and it looks fine you know if it's look if it looks good then everyone goes well that's that's the movie that's great Mm, so mm. you know yeah and now it allows you to be fast in post which then, I guess, gives you time to, to use that stage of post-production instead of trying to find the look or fix things. You're, you're just finessing and fine-tuning things. Yeah. I think, you know, everyone gets a feel for the movie yeah. while you're doing it. If it looks great, then, you know, everyone goes, oh, I'm making a movie. They're inspired. Yeah. I think everyone is, you know. It does. I think it rubs off on all departments. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you feel like you're making a movie. You know? And do you think that, that, that discipline of doing it that way at least partly comes from having shot film. Yeah, well, you know, you had a lot less control in post when you were um, shooting films. But, mm. you know, I mean, photography's not made in the grade. Yeah. It, it never was and it never is. I mean, you know, the light that exists is the light that you put in there. You know, you can't, you can't change it mm. completely. Now, th- there's a, an interesting point. The exterior lighting, <coughs> how, how did you approach that? Because, you know, there's some pretty harsh lighting environments there what, what was your well the idea that we actually had to kind of make a summer winter thing was that and jeremy was interested in seeing colin move around in his house he was very interested in watching him just mm. watching him you know and watching him move around in his house and we wanted to make this delineation between the you know the harsh cold times and the hot times so in order to kind of heighten that we thought if I made the interiors darker and feel more claustrophobic in winter, mm. but the exteriors to feel more open and overcast where possible, you know, to heighten the skies, mm. to, you know, like make them a little bit heavier and to make it feel slightly oppressive, that would be a good thing. So dark and oppressive inside, claustrophobic, brighter and flatter contrast outside 
and then in summer to make the exteriors high contrast outside, but the interiors to be more open and use wider lenses and to really pan him around more in the house so that you actually got a sense of the, the, make the house feel more open and and, yeah, and, yeah. and more light inside so that you know in the exteriors the skies to be white and smoky as opposed to kind of like you know deep blue mm-hmm. with uh setting your light levels and your exposure what what's your process for that are you using light meter or are you using monitoring on set what's what's the process oh, it's a mixture of all things you yeah. know i mean look the alexas are the best things i think in terms of being as fast as as, as it says it is it says it's 800 ASA mm. and it seems to be, you know, yeah, it yeah, seems yeah. to be and it follows a light meter closest than any other yeah. system I've kind of worked with, I think. You know, the Alexa seems to be, it is 800 ASA, you know, and if it, you aren't do underexpose at two stops, well, it seems to be underexposed two stops, man, you know, and that's great. So whereas sometimes you underexpose other systems two stops and it's more like they're four stops yeah. or <laughs> half a stop, you know, it's like, and it's never consistent. Yeah. But the Araflexes seem to be more consistent with all of that stuff. The consistency and accuracy of the Ari Alexa family of cameras is no accident. Ari take great pride in providing tools that allow professionals to do their work reliably and to the highest standards. Knowing that each Ari camera is going to respond consistently to both light and colour is a key part of making the cinematographer's work hit the mark every time and allows us to push the envelope when the story demands. Ari Australia have great resources to explain why and how their cameras perform to such precise standards, and they're always generous with their wealth of knowledge and experience. So to learn more, get in touch with our friends at Ari Australia. So I guess that, that enables you to work a bit more intuitively with that Well, process. what I, I use a meter to light with. Yep. Because I don't want to race back to the monitor and go, oh, okay. That's, the, that's the thing. And then I go back yeah, and, yeah. you know, oh, that's not too dark. And you go, you know, it's like... People both. forget about using light meter just how fast it is. Yeah, yeah, you can just sort of light. And then you, because you're you know, right there. Well, you know, you, with lighting, you know, you, you make the light that's there, you, 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 you modify the light that's there, you work with the lights yeah. that there, you put more light in your supplement, you mm. take it away, whatever you're doing with your lighting. Yeah. You know, and then you can make all of the all of the relationships for brightnesses within the frame helping with the meter, you know, and then... And then, but I, then I always use the the uh, false color. It's a good thing, and I always use that to set the exposure, so that it seems to be right with it. And I can follow, you know, skin tones around with with false color and with waveform monitors. So I use both waveform monitors and false color, which I guess becomes then a very <coughs> double check as well. That you kind of, if they're both agreeing with each other, then <coughs> yeah. But you know, I mean, you don't really have time to kind of. Mull yeah. it over too much these yeah. days, you know. You know, you kind of you light it and you go back to the camera and you go, okay, oh, everyone's about ready to roll. Oh, they're already rolling. Okay, yeah. final. <laughs> We're on There's exposure already. That's it. There's exposure. <laughs> anyway, we set. You know, rolling. Yeah, yeah. So, what sort of sources were you using on those interiors? It didn't look like you had a lot of space there. A lot of space outside. But <laughs> for the farmhouse, because there was all of that stuff in the movie about being under the house and mm. making the area under there where you know they feed the sheep and they do all that stuff. It meant that the house was actually quite high off the ground. It was like shooting a set that was a story off the, off the ground. I mean, I like naturalistic sources, you know, if it's daylight, I like pushing it in from the outside. Although when Colin is secretive, they close the place up, so there was a lot of blinds. Then I was using soft lights uh, inside, um, mm. you know, roughly from where the windows were and, you know, and matching the kind of colour temperature of the blinds. Clayton and I chose the... The um, draperies, uh, you know, <laughs> so we could get that kind of warmer look, yeah, that sort yeah. of summery, yeah. warmer look. So when, when you're pushing light in from outside, HMIs, what sort yep, of Yep, HMIs. Well, look, when I took the job and knowing it was going to be in the great outdoors, um, Aidan and Janelle said to me, um, we'd really love you to shoot the film. I'd say, well, that's great. I'd really like to shoot it. They said, you know, we'd really have to tell you that you can't use 18Ks. And I said, oh, okay. <laughs> Why is that? It's like, because we're going to be in the middle of nowhere and we just don't, you know, we, we can't actually have a huge amount of technology on set uh, because it was just be to have a package for the whole period of the shoot mm. in Mount Barker was the thing. So like so any, any extra bit of gear is going to be... The access machinery was a pain because, yeah. you know, because it's so remote, uh, you know, they had to come from the mines and it was $5,000 for one crane per transport there and back wow so you know and we needed two devices for all of those nights and things mm. so we could you know be flexible and 
you know, move around in the properties. All of that stuff was there on board. Um, so the access machinery came in as a special thing, but everything else we had. And Jean van der Meeren's very well. Um, we, and I, I got some Dinos. Rather than use 18Ks, I use Dinos and Dnets. Right, yeah. Which are fantastic, uh, if you probably all know them, but they're all, uh, they're tungsten lights. There's, you know, 12Ks or 24K lamps. So they're grunty. Mm-hmm. And they're warm and they look great. And we also had a full range of HMIs um, and T12s. We had T12s, Dinos, Dnats, um, and everything from 6K down. Oh, and I had a 12K, sorry, and a 12K HMI as well. Yeah. yeah. So we had a fair bit of technology there. I didn't have 18Ks. Eh. But you had stuff you could work around that with. Yeah, and we used a lot of light mats as well. And, and, yeah. uh, and they were very good, you know, they're, they're quite quick. And you could slide them in and just have a little bit, just touch the light a little bit here and there. So you'd be punching in through the windows and then <coughs> get a light mat in there sometimes. Light mats as well inside, you know. But I like I like tungsten sources too, so I'd be bouncing. The it's a lovely character of tungsten lights. Yeah, they, they look good. Yeah, yeah. yeah, You know, the idea is is that it's natural lighting, like it's real light, it's organic, it's, it's real colour source motivated you know I like kind of that sort of thing you know in a more urban or a industrial environment I'm happier to shoot with more Kino flow mm, uh, LED mm. things yeah. mind you having said that you know the brand new things these um the RGB fixtures I mean the last movie I've just finished you know we were shooting that exactly. with RGBs yeah, yeah. They're great, you know. yeah, yeah or a mixture so on um on rams what was your your approach to the exterior lighting well like I say you know a softer contrast for winter yep for summer, quite contrasty. Sometimes in the summer stuff, particularly with the fire, I didn't light it at all. In fact, I used anti-fill. I took light away. Wow. Yep. You know, heighten the contrast yeah, you know, yeah, to yeah. make it feel more harsh. Yep. Mm. And, you know, give it a bit more exposure. So maybe expose more for the shadow side and let the, let the highlights burn a little bit more. Yeah, yeah. Certainly for the winter, I'd use uh, polar screens just to polarise the skies to make some more saturation in the sky and, yep, yep. and use a lot more like 20 buys and 12 buys. Mind you, I couldn't use 20 by stuff in the valley a lot because it gets windy there and it was was a mammoth effort trying to maintain yeah, a couple yeah. of 20 buys in yeah, that kind yeah. of windy area. Wow. But the valley was beautiful. I mean, you know, it was a 360-degree view. Pronger ups on one side and the uh, other mountain range. Whichever it is, starts with S. Anyway, I've forgotten now. <laughs> anyway, but it was like in the and it was you could pan around and there was you know it was it was perfect in there. Yeah. So, but it was windy. Now, did you see rushes or anything through the the shoot, or you just look? Uh, the the DT very kindly made me some full resolution frames, and I had my own laboratory there. I guess you know I had you know a computer there and some uh, a monitor, so I could check that stuff. Yeah. But I mean, we, no, we didn't really have rushes. I mean, at one point, you know, it was like there was a, a school hall and had a projector in it. We went in there and uh, we tried our level best to kind of line it up. But I mean, <laughs> it was a bit trippy when Just we went wasn't in there. Happen. Man, I tell you <laughs> what, it was like, uh, you know, I needed a drink after it. I, I started looking at it and everyone went like, oh my God, you know, because the uh, lookups were slightly different than kind of standard yeah. kind of Rec 709. <laughs> and. Uh, it looked like I was on acid while I was shooting it. I, you know, it just it had some very weird effects. So anyway, yeah. I just and, and some of it was very dark and some of it was too bright. I mean, it really it took the extremes. It was just going to throw you way off. Yeah, yeah. You know, look, you know, everyone was very good. You know, they said, "I'm sure it looks great." <laughs> I said, "Yeah, I think it will." So, what, what sort of monitoring did you have on set? Uh, we just had some field monitors, the two seventeen inch. Yep, you know, yep. the thing. You know yeah, what you yeah. get. You know, we didn't have and nothing, nothing special. special. Yeah, yeah. There's something good about that, though. I think that it, it, that thing of it stops people from second-guessing as much. Yeah, if, yeah. If you've got the right team. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, they're like about 70% there. You know, yeah. they, They're kind of close to what it looks like, but not really. Yeah. <laughs> you know you know the story. But Which gives you scope to say, yeah, it's fine. Yeah, I just tend yeah. not to look at them, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah, really, for that, you know. I mean, I, I, don't, I think you're mad to try and judge the brightness and lighting on a on a monitor especially if you're outdoors and your eyes are adjusting oh yeah and you can't and there's reflections and it's bright and you can't see what you're seeing kind of got to trust your judgment and what you're doing yeah and so you you had one camera body there or did you have a backup we we had a backup as well yeah. and, i mean obviously up, it would have yeah it would have been a disaster yeah. if the camera went down so we had a mini and a studio uh, oh, right. and wow. then we got another mini for there was second camera half of the time Right. I mean, I like two cameras. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
and we had two cameras for some sequences that you know we we needed two cameras for because you know it was too expensive for them just to have a another camera crew there yeah. the whole time and a steady cam operator and whoever else mick mcdermott did some and and jim freighter did some and arthur biankowski and meredith came out with them they're local west australian how much crew. of the crew was, was local <laughs> over there it's a west australian production company and they're fiercely protective of west australia and so they really wanted to make it with all the west australians i got to go and originally Gavin, an old friend of mine who's a terrific focus puller who's now an operator, Gavin was going to do the film but then he didn't. He was seduced to uh, Tim Winton. Oh, yeah. Breath. No, no, no after um, Breath. It was... Uh, thank you very much. Dead Music. Dead Music, yeah. yeah. And so I brought Stephen Heisler from Sydney and Orla Hughes, uh, who were camera crew that are local here that I've worked with a lot. But uh, the rest of the crew's West Australian. And what was it like working over there? Oh, great. Yeah. I've done several films there now. Yeah, yeah. Through the, um, the course of the shoot, how did you, um, when, when you did go to the, the two-camera scenarios, how did you approach the lighting for that? Did it change how you were doing things? Or oh, really? No. You know, I don't try and fill for both cameras. You know, I just sort of light it for one thing. Just depends on where you put the two cameras. Yeah. Were you um, ever cross-shooting or were you <laughs> sort of down the Jeremy likes more? to do that. A lot of directors do. Well, yeah, it's that kind of performance. Let's get <laughs> yeah, the whole yeah. scene in one. But, I mean, in this sort of situation, you know, especially with six or seven people in a scene, like mm. when we had those scenes with the townspeople, we were always two cameras with that. Yeah, and yeah. so we were shooting. But, you know, I mean, I, we'd, we'd set cameras and then we'd turn around and then I'd relight and then we'd have the two cameras in the other places. So for the most part... But there's tricks you can do to still get a nice look for the lighting and and cross shoot on people. So you know, I do a such bit of as oh, just where you put the key lines so yeah. that in fact you're not one's completely backlit and the other one's completely frontlit. You know, yeah, and yeah. you just actually sort of put it somewhere in the middle so that it looks right. Or maybe sometimes it is nice for one person to be completely backlit and the other person to be frontlit. I like two cameras because it allows you that much more coverage. You know, yeah, yeah, especially yeah. in dialogue scenes. Uh, and otherwise coverage it can be is very a precious thing, isn't it? Oh, sure. You know. Yeah. I mean, and, and and this one because Jeremy was very he was very keen to make the most out of the town because one of the things that he wanted to do was to show the townsfolk more as well. It wasn't he didn't want it just to be about the brothers. He wanted to bring mm. the whole town into it. So and it is a very very evocative of that kind of Australian town, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. You know, where there was a real effort to make that. You know, and so there's a lot of people in those sort of scenes. So, you know, we needed to have several cameras just to get all of that stuff, but also yeah, yeah. to make a variety of coverage to keep it, you know, interesting in the cut. What's that collaboration like between you and Jeremy Sims now? I mean, you've done several films together. Yeah, yeah, we've done three now. So, three films. yeah. Um, to tell you the truth, we didn't really talk to each other a lot about this. I mean, I guess we've now settled into a thing where we... Um, we speak about it in very broad terms and mm. we kind of have a con couple of conversations, you know, and he'll talk to him and we'll go, yeah, that's enough now, we'll talk later. You know, yeah. We're kind of finding it as we went. but Sometimes um, with those kind of conversations, less is more, isn't it? Well, it's good to have a broad yeah. kind of approach, like as in this is what we're interested in and mm. this is how we're going to do it. Then, you know, you just keep always have that in the back of your mind so that any decisions you have to make are always informed by these Kind this of anchored kind of, to that. Anchored to that kind of approach. And it tends to help keep the photography consistent, you know, if you're always being informed by that approach that mm. you've worked out. But, yeah, we don't say a lot. It just seems to happen. Yeah, which is, is yeah. a good thing. That's, it is, yeah, yeah, yeah I, I guess. guess. That's one of, the, one of the ways you know it's working. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. That's right, absolutely. Yeah, yeah absolutely, yeah. Now, um, did you use any filtration on, on the lens on this just NDs? No, polar screens and NDs. Yeah, yeah, You know. Look, I did have with me some classic softs. I thought about using them on Miranda, mm. but, you know, she's got a lovely look. And I said to Jeremy, are you very concerned about seeing any lines on her face? And he said, not really. I, we should celebrate that. Well, well, of course. Yeah. You know, so that's it. So yeah, yeah. Sometimes I use grads too, you know, even with the DI in mind, I still use them. Yep. I guess it's it's another one of those elements of being able to control something before you get to the di. Honestly, it's um, some things I leave. Like sometimes, you know, if there's a hot wall or something like that, I think I'll fix that in post. Yeah. But uh, you've got to kind of also know that you know you're going to be there in post because 
sometimes <laughs> I haven't been available to go and do the post, you know, and then you think, oh, you know, there were some things I wanted to fix. So, you know, or things that I was going to do later, but no one ever, no one would ever notice. No one would ever do them, you know, because yeah, yeah. that was just, yeah. so it's only it's me who sort of says, you know, just put, a, just put a window on that wall, will you, and just pull that down a little yeah. bit for me. Will you? Yeah. So I've got to ring them and sort of say those things. You know. yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas I guess if you're, say, with a grad and putting that in and you know it's done, you kind of, you don't have to trust that you're going to be there and and remember to do that <coughs> or have time to do that or whatever the yeah it's a, it's a bit of both yeah yeah yeah. A, yeah 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 and I guess it's always now this this balancing act of how much do you do on set uh, or with filtration how much do you do in in the di and you know what what's what's the 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 balancing act like for you with that what's the the thought process well look. You know, because you can change a lot in the DI, I don't use a lot of colour filters anymore. Yeah. I used to use them all the time, for film especially. Yeah. And still sometimes, you know, to try and make really, really orangey warm effects, it's actually better to use it, do it with the lighting, like mm. to use lighting gels, you know, and, uh, and some warming filters because trying to make a really warm orange look seems to be hard in digital world. It tends to, it either goes red or it goes brown, you know, or it looks very monochrome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it tends to taint the blacks and end up being shit. But you know, the DI is such a powerful tool; you can really do a lot of work with it. Mm. So, yeah. There is a subtle difference, the, though, isn't it, between like changing the light and the way that that falls on the the sensor yeah. versus twisting around the color in in post. True, it's, that it's subtle, but it's different. That is, that's true. And I think it's better if you do it in the lighting rather than try and belt it with a kind of a filter stick in grading because it yeah. always makes it a bit monochrome and a bit shit. Yeah. You know, it tends to saturate everything you don't have color separation look you can get great effects it just depends on what you're doing different ways of doing things. yeah uh, different flavors depends on what it is yeah when it comes to working out what's best to do on set and what works well in the color grade it's essential to have a solid understanding of what the technology is capable of and how to make it do what you want creatively our sponsor mz online education has courses that delve into all aspects of cameras lenses lighting and the grade to help you fast track your knowledge base and not only get the creative results you want, but also work in the fastest and most efficient way possible. Use the promo code TSTOP for a 20% discount at mz.com. I noticed there was a couple of times where you had some, some very warm light and some very cold light in the same, same scene. What was, what was the thought process and approach with that? It's all about contrast and really your eye tends to see colour if you've got a contrasting colour in the same frame. So it tends to make the image richer, if mm, actually, mm. to have colour contrast. There you go, folks. Colour contrast. Take away for the night. There it is. That's the yes. takeaway for the night. We've got a question. Andrew Vile. Hello, Andrew. How are you? Um, I think um, I saw the original uh, Rams, and I love the uh, landscapes of the Icelandic landscapes. I think people will love the Australian landscapes from this time. Yes. So, did you did you think that the landscape was you know a similar player in the Icelandic film to this movie? Well, for me it was because I've been to Reykjavik and I was really interested in seeing all of the, the backgrounds and to the story. And the same thing in your film in this one. Got the paper over there. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Of course, the um, in Iceland, of course, it's cold. The cold and the snow is the is the dangerous thing. Um, you know, freezing storms and ice. Whereas uh, the Australian thing uh, wouldn't have worked here. <laughs> so that became bushfires here. It became heat and bushfires, that's yeah. right. Which works really well. It's, it's the same kind of force of nature they're, they're at the mercy of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that was the idea. That was yeah. the idea. How did you approach the landscapes? Because there is a lot, like the landscapes are a big presence in the film. Was that shot by a second unit or was it part of principal? Uh, a bit of both of us. Jim and uh, Mick both did some second unit stuff. Simply because the days were very long. Yeah. I mean, in West Australia, in that, in that neck of the woods, you know, the sun comes up at 5am and goes down at kind of quarter to eight. So getting the ends of the day, one end of the day or the other, is a trick for the schedule. You can't get both in the same day, so you've got to make your choice. So some mm -hmm. angles of... Yeah, juggling turnarounds. All that stuff. Yeah. yeah, that's it. So really you needed to actually send the second unit out for some, to get some particular times of day. And I love a lovely time of day in the film. They're so evocative 
in, in a film that features the landscape so heavily, you know, you've got to do that. Uh, onto that, uh, there's a lot of smoke and flame. Uh, yeah. Jeremy J is very, he's suspicious of special effects <laughs> and visual effects. He likes to see things for real, you know, that's just him, you know. Mm. Doesn't like green screen, sort of doesn't trust all that sort of stuff in a way, you know. Mm. Um, and Aiden, particularly the producer, but all of them were very, very like, you know, there's bushfires in this, we're not going to have any CG flames, forget visual effects, forget all that stuff. No, 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 we're going to have the real thing, fire, the real thing. And to that end, the first part of the shoot where we did do the bushfires before the the bushfire season. The bushfire season begins yeah. and before those restrictions come in. For the fire, we burnt 14 acres of bushland, which was going to be burnt to backbone for the town anyway as part of the town's ah, right. you know, yearly safety thing. Yeah. But we burnt, obviously, much more than just a backbone. You know. But we had five fire brigades on the day. Like all local brigades came in and they all came with their, all their vehicles. And we had four cameras or five cameras and a 30-foot arm and, like, we set up a whole thing. And it was all going to be, you know, like we had the actors in really close and so it was a bit of a setup. And things as they go, I mean, there was a backbone to begin with and we shot the backbone so we could get the cask really quite close to mm. all of that sort of backboning stuff. The backbone went, probably went for a little bit too long. But uh, when we actually set the real fire and had everything going and all of the cameras going and they really wanted to get a big blaze and it would have been a big blaze i mean if you've got 14 acres burning with the wind behind it it's a mm. big firewall you know and like they're all saying you're gonna you're gonna have to get back and honestly you know you've got to pull away there so we were all you know standing by and as the flames got closer to us you know we were started to shoot um and all that real fire was, which looks so great the wind mm. changed and blew it back on itself and then changed direction and the fire blew out round the other way. And the flames never really got close enough for us to really get the really spectacular stuff, wow. in which case Jeremy was extraordinarily um, distraught. And so the next day on set I turned up with the visual effects supervisor with me at breakfast and we went, we're here. <laughs> so we... Yeah. Oh, look, absolutely, yeah. Well, I mean, look, there was visual effects for the big bushfire stuff with Sam, then there was those scenes where Sam's kind of right in the middle of the fire and all that sort of stuff. It was largely CG. We had some real flame effects there, but as I say, the production really wanted to see, you know, the real thing. So Dan Oliver came mm. across with a six-man effects crew and we had, you know, a truckload of stuff. I mean, we put... There was... Big smoke machines, you know, the big Ritter fans. We had ash candles. We had fake ash. We were making, you know, because part of the thing, I read a great, there's a great book called Train Dreams that actually has a fantastic scene in, of a bushfire and it talks about ash falling like snow. And it was something that we thought that was, it was a great idea. So mm. the effects team, you know, made sort of like flurries and rainstorms of ash, you know, and we had... That's yeah. right, yeah, yeah, no, that was, we really wanted that, you know, we were really trying for that. So, so that we had six people doing flame and doing smoke and ash and wind for the most part for all of that stuff on the beach and in the, in, in the bush for all of the fire scenes. To what extent did the, the digital VFX come into the fire? Well, what actually was weird was that, in fact, there was, weirdly enough, when we were shooting the scenes where the veterinarian comes to the farm and she sees sheep poo there, and then springs in. There was a fire that wasn't very far away and there was a wind that blew a lot of smoke in, you know, and it looked great. And so we had some real bushfire smoke there for one day, but the problem was that scene was a lot earlier than when we originally had the idea of smoke coming in. But then came for us to actually sort of like put more smoke in, so we started to do more smoke. And then we did most of it mechanically, but there was some... Um, visual effects smoke that, that they did as well. So Tony Bannon and Sandbox did a lot to augment the real mechanical effects that we had. But when there's smoke, there's real smoke there. So it's adding to what you've done. So yeah, yeah, and, and there were some, but there were some, there, there were some scenes that were shot earlier in the schedule that, in the, well, in the story, sort of fell after the kind of 
right. scenes where we were shot, we had real smoke, so we actually then had to put smoke in those scenes and then that had to be done as post because they were already shot. Yeah, yeah. And so, so like the, the big wide shots of the, the landscape with the bushfire raging, was that VFX or was that some of that real? Well, it depends on which ones you mean. You know when they're sitting there and they're on the log and they look and they see the, the fire on the distant horizon? That's mm. all visual effects. It's all Tony. They did a great right. job. You know, mm. They really did. You know, it looked good, I thought. Yeah, yeah. It's very and, um, Yeah, yeah. You know, and the long lenses where they're standing and they say, oh, my God, is that Colin Andles, you know, on the bike? Mm. You know, that whole, that, 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 the, the, the top of the frame there on the, on the ridge, that's all visual effects where they put in that kind of, you know, worstery. Right. Wow. Smoky burning. So yeah, they, they enhanced that. Yeah. Dan. Um, the there's a couple of great areas there's one in particular and I don't know if it's day to night or if it's a visual effects shot where there is a huge that pulls up with a really wide frame and you basically see like the entire like uh trajectory of the landscape. Of course you can't light it at night. You're talking about where the tractor pushes the uh, the um, the all of the poo into the yes. dam. Yes. Yeah, that was day for night because I mean I looked at that. <laughs> I, I looked at that. And I thought, oh, oh. Very good day for oh, thanks, man. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's a matter of actually scheduling it to get it to, so that you get the light right there. And I mean, you know, really to do day for night properly, you actually need the sun and a blue sky as the best kind of conditions. So it's either cross-lit or three-quarter backlit or something. So we scheduled it specifically and we, in pre-production, kind of plotted out where everything would go so that, you know, we had a real plan for that. No, it was just polar screens and yeah, no, we did it all in um, in post. It wasn't a visual effect. It was, it was. It was very convincing, yeah, wasn't it? That, yeah, but in a way, I think that, that that was kind of almost a fantasy sequence. So that night mm -hmm. had a real dreaminess to it. Yeah. And the problem with Rams, of course, is that, you know, and yeah. Jay's thing was, you know, keep it real. So so once, once you tied yourself to that, <laughs> that realism, you Yeah, and the other problem was there was, there, was night, well. there was night for night yeah. either side of it. So yeah. it was like, you know... It's, it's kind of a worst like, case scenario. It is, you know, <laughs> it's like, oh my God, you know. So, I mean, if it looks shit, I'm in trouble. But what we did do is we put very, very bright practicals on the um, headlights on the, um, we, we, you know, had a super bright thing that we rigged to the tractor. Wow. And we were lucky, you know. I mean, I've, I've tried to do day for night before in some films and I've done all sorts of things using black and white and infrared and all sorts of shit. But look, you know, the problem with it is, is that if you get a white sky, you know, you're in trouble. You know, if you get overcast and no sun, then day for night can look really a bit fake, terrible, so in fact. Yeah. Yeah. We shot from about 4.30 and I was nervous that in fact we would to try and get it all in. So we started on the beach a little bit earlier because it was overcast and so I did some stuff that was, you know, still quite bright. But then... Were you underexposing and messing with the white balance at all? No, you know, no, I didn't. I, I didn't mess with the white balance. I, don't, I think that that's possibly dangerous. Yeah. You don't want to starve the negative yeah. of colour. But I did make it a little bit heavier. But again, we were lucky, you know. Because, in fact, the background of the sky was relatively blue, but, in fact, there wasn't any direct sun on it, so it made quite a nice dusk. So, I mean, the initial stuff, you'll, and you'll see it in the film when the bike drives up onto the beach and you're on the beach, you don't see very much of the interactivity of the headlights of the, no. of the, on the actual sand, but you do later. Yeah. But, you know, so we started on the... Like that whole beach, we were on one beach, we were at both ends. We shot the death scene, you know, the scene where we killed... Colin, which I wanted to do, I wanted to kill him. But Jeremy wanted him to come back to life. Anyway, there was. <laughs> Compromise. <laughs> so we, we shot all that beach. So the, the death scene plus the twitch scene was all one day. So And they were at either ends of the, of the beach. So we 
fired down there and just started shooting. So always, so we had gators and steady cam, so that you know because one or two camera positions that we'd preset, so that we got into it pretty quick. You know, we just sort of uh, shot in a very small window of time. And in fact, we painted. There's a drone shot or two in there along the beach, and the drones were in shot, and we were shooting those at the same time as we shot the other stuff and painted the drones out later. Wow. So, yeah. To do all that stuff, you know. Now, we're, we're almost out of time, but do, do you have any kind of overriding memory or standout memory from this shoot? Oh, apart from eating in the same restaurant uh, for t- months and months and months. <laughs> no, I enjoyed it. It was lovely. You know, I mean, the amount of people in my park were great. Uh, are there any questions? Has anyone got any questions at all? Yes. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, animals are animals and they do what they do. And, I mean, we had, we had some very good trainers, Kirsten Fedderson come across. Uh, initially, <laughs> Aidan was hopeful that, um, you know, we could get some local sheep and they'd be really good. And the art department said, I think that's a really, really bad idea. And so we ended up kind of <laughs> paying for six sheep which were trained. And it's not easy to train sheep at all for a second they don't <laughs> they resist but uh, uh and those sheep cost more than the main the rest of the main cast including <laughs> sam put together you know they they were the they were the big ticket item you know they had their own trailer and if they didn't feel like performing <laughs> man that was it but, um but they 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 were they were good they could hit marks so they put things down for them and they they'd hit a mark but again you know you get two cameras out with that sort of stuff and you have mm-hmm. an idea about what you could do and the dogs were extremely helpful about wrangling them you know the dogs are, they were real sheep dogs so that they could when the when the animals needed to be herded and needed to go then the dogs could could get them moving and could keep them along a path but Kirsten's team so there was there was six animal people and they, the sheep were very good about going to them. So they could call them and we could have them just out of frame and do all of that stuff. And they did an awful lot of sort of ducking down and hiding behind logs and behind, you know, flattening themselves into the grass and sort of like firing up into the air and then disappearing <laughs> again. It's just like, you know, lower, go lower, you know. So they were terrific, really. The trainers, uh, but the, and the sheep were great too. Uh, so, the, the, yeah, the sheep were, uh, the sheep did a great job. You can't make a sheep do what it doesn't want to do. They're pretty big and they're quite heavy and if that doesn't want to hang around and it doesn't want to be in the house then there's not much you can do about that so we had to make kind of pens for them to keep them wrangled into the kind of areas we wanted them to be no jay doesn't like that stuff you know no we used to real things Maybe that was crew recreation, but I didn't want to get into that <laughs> stuff. We were away in a long for a long time. So yes, I'm not sure. Oh, sorry, no, I tell a lie. Maybe the one that's in Aiden's office was the one that we did have in the back of a van, uh, uh, the Ute. You know, all of that aerial stuff where the sheep's are travelling through the countryside. Oh, yeah. There's um, there was both real helicopter, um, <laughs> real helicopter, and drone work for that stuff. But yeah, we for that because there was a drone team that drove around shooting sheep being carted around. That was the time for that. Thanks, Steve. Thanks for, for sharing your insights in the film. Thank you. Thanks. Cheers.